Tying that back to Austrian economics, one thing that Hayek really stressed the importance of was the denationalization of money. He saw that uh, really a thing that has caused so much havoc and, and harm in people's lives is nationalized money, right? Like governments having total control of money and, uh, you know, money coming from government and not, uh, you know, people being able to choose what money they want. And that's what Bitcoin powerfully it gives people that, that choice. And it does so because it's, it's censorship resistant, right? If governments could shut Bitcoin down, they would have done it 10 years ago, right? But they can't. So it gives people this kind of roundabout way is the way Hayek posed it. He said, you know, we won't ever really fix this until we create something that in, you know, we, he basically said, we can't take the power of, of the control of our money back from governments. We have to just kind of create something else. Is Bitcoin dead? David Waugh, managing editor at AIER, doesn't think so. In this episode of Liberty Curious, we discuss the philosophy and intrinsic value of Bitcoin, the problems and politicization of centralized finance, the reasons Bitcoin may have been created, and what the future might look like. If you enjoy this podcast, you can also check out the Liberty Curious playlist on AIER here. You can subscribe to this new channel and hit the notification bell to be notified of all new videos. Oh yeah, that's great. I could talk about this for hours, so. That's great. Well, well, most Bitcoiners can, right? Like yeah. it's, there's something about it that, that gets people excited. And maybe that's a good place to start. So thank you, David, for being here today. And um, Tell me, like, why is Bitcoin so exciting for people? Why is it exciting for you to talk about? Yeah, so I think that Bitcoin is so exciting because really we haven't had a new form of money in a really long time, right? I think that, you know, we had, you, people had gold and then they had, you know, dollars that were backed by gold and then they weren't. Right. And then, you know, you have credit cards, but those are really you're spending dollars on credit cards. Right. So we haven't had a new form of money. You know, there's many reasons that uh, have prevented kind of new new forms of money, uh, monetary technology from really coming about. But, uh, you know, it's it's really exciting for for that reason. And then also for all of the benefits that. Bitcoin might offer to people that use it. So now there's also been a lot of bad headlines about Bitcoin and crypto in general, right? So like the last, I guess, maybe starting with the beginning of the COVID crisis and the authoritarianism that started to rise and, you know, excess government control and regulation and restrictions and things like that, you saw that there was kind of this movement of a lot of people who were going towards Bitcoin as a way to kind of have some insurance, I guess, against uh, fiat currency and, and the fact that it might go awry. And now those things are actually happening. Like we're seeing talks about CBDCs and we're seeing things like, you know, the truckers convoy protest in Canada where uh, the banks came and, and crushed any dissent by freezing people's bank accounts. So there was definitely value in going towards something like Bitcoin. But then we've also seen it go from, I think the all-time high was 69,000 
um, now down sitting somewhere around 20,000. So people are kind of saying, hey, well, we warned you, we told you, right? So what do you have to say about that? <laughs> yeah, so I have a, a lot to say about that, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, one of one of the things that makes Bitcoin so powerful as a, you know, one of its main, I guess, features is that it allows people to transact without asking, you know, a third party for permission, right? You can do permissionless transactions on the Bitcoin network. I can send money to a relative in South America without, you know, waiting a few days for the wire transfer to get approved, right? And that's a really powerful tool with respect to financial privacy and just, you know, the ability to transfer value across space and time, you know, instantly. And so that kind of idea, you know, Bitcoin being a digital cash where you don't have to ask permission from your bank to send, send you know, money to somebody else, those are, those are really powerful applications of, of Bitcoin. And, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, people who want to dissent from their government, right? It's, it's really, it's powerful. And that was one of the things that kind of inspired the, really the main thing that inspired the creation of, of Bitcoin is the quest for digital cash, right? Like the, um, the cypherpunks, the, the, the kind of group of computer scientists, uh, economists, technologists, uh, uh, this group of people in the 1980s and 1990s that were working on, you know, creating a digital cash, they were concerned with, uh, you know, you had for, you know, 50 years, you had dollars, people could, you know, or, or whatever currencies were, were in, you know, your, your country, where you could, you know, walk down to the store, buy something with a, with a paper, you know, fiat currency, give it to your relatives, right? But then, when centralized finance became, you know, digital, that allows the centralized institutions to, you know, cancel, censor your transactions really easily, right? And so the kind of cypherpunks were realizing, wait, if we need, you know, if we want to have privacy in a digital world, we need digital cash. So they really, you know, Bitcoin was the fruition of, you know, 10 or 20 years of hard work by that group, and then they kind of just released it into the world uh, for for everybody's benefit. And so when you're thinking about, you know, a protest movement, whether it's in Canada or Vietnam or Nigeria, right, that ability to, uh, you know, fund yourself, accept donations, you know, send money to your your fellow people in the movement, right, but without the ability of the government or another centralized institution to censor you, that's that's really powerful. Right. I remember seeing a few years back as well, places like Venezuela who were experiencing hyperinflation, um, you know, they were using Bitcoin because it was allowing them, um, I guess, to have more economic freedom and, and to make transactions that were more just somehow. But it's also kind of... Um, difficult to, to fathom because you look at the price of Bitcoin, which fluctuates quite a lot compared to a fiat currency. So, you know, um, what would you say to that kind of thing? 
Yeah. And before I get into that, there's one other thing that uh, I, I missed about Bitcoin, and that's that anybody can use it, right? That's really powerful as well. Uh, just the fact that anybody with internet access can use this monetary network to transfer value across space and time to whoever they want, right? Like it's, that's, that's huge because, you know, if you're in Venezuela, you don't have access to other, uh, you know, monetary networks that are, you know, they might be provided by the government, whatever. But with Bitcoin, all you need is internet. Um, and then with respect to price action, uh, you know, the, the fact that it is, it has, it's, the fact that it's volatile is, uh, it, it does make it challenging for people who are using it. And the, the price is really impacted by um, so many things, just like the price of gold is impacted by macro, the macro environment, uh, you know, the other things that affect demand. But one thing that's interesting about Bitcoin is that with its fixed supply, uh, you know, supply changes don't affect the price. And that, that is one thing that contributes significantly to its, its volatility, right? With something like gold, you have, you know, um, demand increases can raise the price, but then miners go out, they mine more gold, you have more supply that, you know, brings the price more to, you know, it kind of levels the price. And that's, you know, part of why the gold standard worked very well. And with dollars, you know, if there's, you know, central banks, they're, they're tweaking uh, supply, whatever, right, to, to kind of ensure, try to, or try to ensure price stability. But with Bitcoin, with the fixed supply, really the only thing that affects, you know, the price is, is demand. Yeah. And that is very different from central banks. Uh, maybe we can uh, zoom in on that a little bit because, you know, we kind of take it for granted that we live in a world where central banks do uh, play with the prices, play with the interest rates, and do all of the things that we're seeing now, right? Um, but this hasn't been the way for, you know, a very long time. So, you know, Bitcoin in a sense, like, it's more of a, a free exchange. It's more of a kind of free market. Like, maybe that's not the right term, but central banks are really, you know, um, kind of a central authority, right? That's that's controlling things, central planners, yeah. financial central planners. And, and you know, we looked at the, the fall of the Soviet Union and it was like, okay, this, this model doesn't work. Let's move away from central planning. Um, but yet we still have central banks. So do you think that Bitcoin, as you were saying, it would, the seeds were kind of planted in the, in the late 80s and 90s. So do you think that that was also... Um, a kind of intuitive response to these people who who were creating it, who were seeing that you know central planning is not really going away in the financial arena. Yeah, yeah, I think that um, Bitcoin offers an alternative to central banking. It's a monetary network that works. It self governs, and it allows people to you know do all of their transactions without relying on. A central bank, or or you know the banks that that work with the central bank, right? So uh, it really it offers a complete alternative that works that cannot be changed or altered by government officials. Yeah, um, and you know with central banks, I mean we've seen that there tends to be, you know, if you look at the big pattern. 
an inability to really control prices. And I guess that's because it's such a complex system. You know, the market is so complex that central banks can never, you know, of course, completely get it right. And, you know, Hayek has spoken about this and, and many other Austrian economists. Um, so can you maybe explain a little bit that, that philosophy and how it relates to Bitcoin? Yeah, yeah. So Bitcoin is, is definitely influenced by uh, Austrian economics. Uh, and then, but with respect to, you know, central banking, central banks, you know, have this impossible task of like, uh, you know, ensuring, and I know that that'll make, that'll make a lot of economists really mad that I just said that it's like their job, that they'll never really succeed at their job. Um, because people have a lot of ideas about how central banks, if, if, you, if they just did this, then they would get it right, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they're really, they're always going to be influenced by politics. They always, you know, have to, you know, you know at the same time balance that with, you know, this impossibility of, you know, trying to capture all the information so that they can, like, you know, adjust... Uh, the money supply to, to ensure price stability. And then, you know, at the same time, central banking that is, you know, discretionary, it's when it's really, you know, they have the power to really like do whatever they want with the with respect to the money supply, that's gonna heavily politicize it. And that in in and of itself makes it really challenging for them to actually do their jobs well. Right. Like they're supposed to remain apolitical, but we've seen yeah. that, that that they're not, you know. Um, you can always see that there are changes that are being made with election cycles, for example, you know. Um, you can also look at things like how now um, the, the, the Federal Reserve wants to start implementing climate change initiatives and things like that, right? So I don't, I don't know how that's related to central banking, you know, but that that seems to be a political thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, simultaneously, as you know, people are people have the options to kind of opt out of this centralized financial system with something like Bitcoin. Centralized finance is becoming way more politicized, so it's kind of a funny thing that's occurring. Uh, and then, yeah, at, at the same time, I mean, you look at the U.S. The U.S. central bank is uh, like compared to global central banks is even less politicized than, you know, some of some of the other central banks. And but even then, you know, it's not immune to political pressures, right? Like the the Fed chair still has to get reappointed, right? Um, you know, so the the process, the the Federal Reserve appointees, they go through, some of them have to go through, you know, like the Senate, right? Um, so it's a it's a very political process. Yeah, you can definitely see that the EU um they are they are far more overtly political. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and we're seeing that right now, you know, like um the the commissioner said the other day, Ursula von der Leyen, uh that you know, we're going to have to flatten the curve on electricity. So yeah. they're they're starting to uh play with all of these these other things and kind of um play sim city with people's lives. And you know, yeah. if central banks go unfettered, they're able to do that. Whereas I guess with Bitcoin, it's just about exchange. It's just about money, essentially. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, it's it's a really it's a hilarious but also dangerous notion by that 
you know, politicians are kind of embracing nowadays, that they can flatten every curve, right? Like it started with COVID, they were like, okay, we just need to stay inside for 15 days, then 30 days, then, you know, for the rest mm-hmm. of your lives. Mm-hmm. And then you can, uh, you know, flatten the curve, nobody will be sick. And now, you know, energy prices are skyrocketing. Oh, we gotta, we have to flatten that curve too, right? Like it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a, very, very misguided uh, hubris on on the part of politicians that is is quite dangerous. And then, you know, you have Bitcoin as this alternative. Bitcoin is code, right? The rules are code. The governance process to, to change the code of Bitcoin, you have to submit a uh, Bitcoin improvement proposal. It has to, go, it goes through an ex- incredibly long process and then it has to be accepted by everybody on the Bitcoin network. And so, you know, changes to Bitcoin are incredibly slow. They're incredibly, you know, kind of thought out, debated on. And actually, with Bitcoin, if, um, you know, we've seen tr- changes or attempted changes to Bitcoin, like increasing the block size that eventually, you uh, resulted in Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin kind of splitting. And, you know, people people chose Bitcoin because they like the monetary qualities of Bitcoin. And so you really have, with Bitcoin, you can choose kind of the the monetary qualities of, of whichever network you, you want, I guess, uh, if I'm putting that correctly. So yeah. you really have, you have choice with Bitcoin uh, that you really don't have with your kind of government central banks, right? Like you don't, you don't have a choice of like which, which dollar you're going to use. And that's really what, tying that back to Austrian economics, one thing that Hayek really s- stressed the importance of was the denationalization of money. He saw that uh, really a thing that has caused so much havoc and, and harm in people's lives is nationalized money, right? Like governments having total control of money and uh, you know, money coming from government and not, uh, you know, people being able to choose what money they want. And that's what Bitcoin powerfully cho- gives people that, that choice. And it does so because it's, it's censorship resistant, right? If governments could shut Bitcoin down, they would have done it 10 years ago, right? But they can't. So it gives people this kind of roundabout way is the way Hayek posed it. He said, you know, we won't ever really fix this until we create something that in, you know, we, he basically said, we can't take the power of, of the control of our money back from governments. We have to just kind of create something else, really. Cool. Yeah, an alternative. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, but skeptics would say um, that Bitcoin itself can't be controlled, but the platforms where you're able to yep. access your Bitcoin can be controlled and shut down and regulated and banned. Um, so what are your answers to that? Yeah, so that is a, it's a challenge that Bitcoiners and Bitcoin advocates have to really take head on, right? So you saw with the truckers in Canada, one thing that is challenging for Bitcoin is that every one of the main ways, because of convenience, that people buy Bitcoin is on exchanges that are regulated by government. And exchanges have a choke point where when you when you sign up for an exchange, you submit all your information to that exchange. So the government can know, you know, oh, you have you've bought some Bitcoin, right? So they know you have Bitcoin. So they can, you know, threaten, intimidate, censor, all of that, right? 
So even though you're holding a, a money that they can't, you know, debase, change, pull, take from you, they can make your life really hard. And that that's a that's a challenge that, you know, especially in the West people face is that it's really hard to start a business, uh, you know, where you like sell people Bitcoin and, and do that without, you know, I mean, it's legally impossible without to, to circumvent, you know, the, the KYC process. So that's a that's a choke point for um, financial privacy. And the alternatives to that right now are you can you can mine your own Bitcoin and you can, you know, send that to your own wallet. And, you know, that Bitcoin is kind of non KYC. It hasn't gone through the like know your customer anti money laundering you know, rules and, and process where people have to give their information up. Or, and then you can also, you could receive non-KYC Bitcoin peer-to-peer. Somebody could send it to you. Or you could do something um, called coin mixing or, or a coin join where you it can kind of put your Bitcoin or another crypto crypto asset through a process that tries to kind of scrub away the... the um, the history of it, I guess, is a is a really you know rough way of putting it, but um, you know that that process is not perfect, and it's also facing a lot of regulatory pressure to kind of crack down on coin mixers, which are really um, it's really just a way to try to have financial privacy. It's not um, it's not in and of itself you know geared towards uh, you know crime or, or terrorism or something like that. It's coin mixing is really just an attempt at financial privacy, but it's really been demonized by governments and, and regulators who say, you know, we need we need the government to be able to see every transaction and everything that you do so that we can, you know, stop criminals or something like that. Right. And it's right. really it's really uh it's not based on evidence, really. Like you look at uh crypto crime statistics and and you know there's a lot more crime occurring with uh, government money and a lot more money laundering going on with government money than in you know alternatives like bitcoin but you know it's an excuse that they're using to basically keep up the war on financial privacy yeah i've seen that a lot um i've seen the um uh, what is it the the uh, the the bif or one of one of the big banks there Mm-hmm. Um, Christina Georgievina, uh, the Russian lady, you know, who who talks a lot about the CBDC, you know, that's exactly the argument that she gives. Yeah. Um, sorry, the IMF. Um, mm-hmm. she, she's, she says, you know what, you're going to have all of these criminals who are using cryptocurrency. She won't even talk really about Bitcoin. She talked about it once and, and that yeah. was it. It's kind of like the Lord Voldemort of, uh, of the the finance world, you know, like nobody wants to name it who are in government or a big bank um, because I think that they're threatened by it, right? So Mm -hmm. um, they tend to also put it in the same category as, you know, failing kind of, for lack of a better term, shit coins, you know, like Luna and things like that, you know, and these kinds of Ponzi schemes and they put Bitcoin in the same basket as that. And um, and then they say, well, yeah, there's going to be all kinds of criminal activity if we just allow this to go unfettered. So therefore, we are going to provide you with this CBDC, the central bank digital currency that will be coordinated globally among all the central banks, um, you know, and 
once that's done, basically, don't worry, guys. You know, there's a few problems. You know, there's some human rights issues around this, and Georgievina has has said this actually. Um, but but don't worry. We're we're looking into it, and we'll make sure that that everything is fine. But meanwhile, they'll be able to uh, to trace every single transaction, to know basically every move that you're making that's attached to your to your wallet. Um, and and surveil the the population and and everything that they're doing. So of course, uh, Bitcoin having the potential to to be the opposite of that is is very uh, threatening to that model. Yeah, yeah. The IMF is you know this this might sound harsh, but there the IMF is fundamentally a bully. The IMF uh, really you know lives on its ability to make people dependent on it and. Uh, you know, force force countries that are in dire financial straits to really operate like the IMF wants them to, and you'll mm. you have to do it the, our way, or else you don't get our money, right? So if if there's alternatives to the IMF, it's very threatening to them, and they're kind of, you know, I I, I don't even know if the IMF is like a nonprofit or something, I guess, uh, but it. So I was I was gonna say it threatens their threatens their business model, but uh, you know I don't know if they're. You can really call them a business, but they they they're a bully, and they're and they're kind of threatened by Bitcoin. Yeah, that would make sense as well. There's also the mm-hmm. Bank of International Settlements. Yeah, um, that big bank there. Like, do you know anything about the history of that of that bank? Um, yeah, I mean the the, the central bank, central bank, right? They yes. they influence how uh, you know how other central banks should act and kind of give them you know the the rule book. I guess, and yeah. and they they don't like Bitcoin, obviously. <laughs> yeah, and and interesting. Um, I have this book, uh, the to- the Tower of Basel, because they're mm-hmm. located in Basel, Switzerland, right? Um, and it tells the history of the BIS, and I'm not quite into that book yet. It's just on my shelf, but yeah. Um, I I heard actually in a in a podcast, the Bitcoin Matrix. I heard an episode where somebody went through kind of the history of the BIS. Um, so I can I can link that below for people to listen yeah, to. Yeah, sure. Um, but what he says, uh, the guest on on the Bitcoin Matrix, was that the the Bank of International Settlements was actually created uh, to repay the the war reparations from Germany from the First World War. And then after that, you know, Hitler came in and he was like. We're not doing that. And then the the BIS uh, basically then became the the um, the place where all of the central banks would store their gold, and they became the main exchange for the central banks then. And um, it, it's it's taught that what happened then was that all of the um, all of the the Nazi uh, war machine was basically funded by the BIS. And so it has a very dark history. Like hmm. they were supposed to remain neutral, but they actually enabled the the Second World War to go on much longer. Wow. Um, yeah. And so it's kind of funny because it has those roots, that yeah. bank. And then you think about now how they're still at the top of the pyramid of the banks, yeah. and that now they want to um, everybody to have this uh, this central bank digital currency. Uh, which will be uh, all of the rules about it will basically be decided by the Bank of International Settlements, if if I understand correctly. Like they seem to be really behind this, 
Um, so, so that's really interesting for people to think about and consider. And like I said, it's just some small details about that. I would recommend yeah. listening to the podcast and reading the book to learn more fully about it. But isn't that interesting? Yeah, that is. And it's really, it's interesting in the context of, you know, the, the BIS is, continues to say that the future of money will be CBDCs. And that's because people, uh, people have to trust central banks and that the trust of trusting your central bank means that you trust that your money will be fine and that you can use their money and that everything will be okay. And that's because people love central banks so much. And that's just, you know, like flattening the curve, it's just insane hubris. Um, and I, you know, it's, it's not the way it has to be, but they make it seem like it, it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really good point, David. Um, so I actually want to talk though about where, you know, Bitcoin has gone from, like I said, that kind of all time high of around 69,000 now to around 20,000 people spoke about it being an inflation hedge, you know, and so now anybody who, who may have been into it, maybe they're thinking otherwise, maybe they're worried about it, or people who are always skeptics or people who were really against Bitcoin now have this great argument to say, ha, look, you guys were duped. You know, Bitcoin is just another Ponzi scheme. Um, and so there you are, there's the evidence. What, what do you have to say to that? Yeah, yeah. So the, the inflation hedge narrative is funny because, you know, it's, it's pretty much promulgated by uh, you know, your typical like uh, CNBC financial market commentator people, right? And the, the idea of an inflation hedge is something that protects you from the effects of, you know, your, the, your money having less purchasing power. And traditionally, people, people were taught that, uh, you know, gold, real estate, stuff that's less tied to, you know, that the price is less affected by changes in um, money prices were good inflation hedges. And then, you know, because Bitcoin, uh, you know, Bitcoin supply can't be, you know, diluted, maybe people thought that Bitcoin was kind of like a digital gold. They, they kind of thought, oh, okay, well, Bitcoin, Bitcoin is an inflation hedge, right? And then when the price of Bitcoin went down, oh my gosh, the inflation hedge narrative fell apart, right? But really, when you look at, you know, kind of decoupling Bitcoin's price from, you know, the qualities of Bitcoin, Bitcoin's price is pretty much traded, you know, like a risky tech stock. Like it's, and that's because, you know, a lot of people, I th at least I, I think, kind of get into Bitcoin without fully understanding, you know, what, what its monetary qualities are about, all this stuff, they, they just see like, okay, you know, it's a risky, it's risky because its price goes up and down, it's new technology, right? So I'm going to put my money into Bitcoin. And then when the market starts to tumble, like we've seen over the past, you know, this past year, Bitcoin also goes down because, you know, all of a sudden those people, those people go out, right? They're like, okay, I'm done. I'm done with this speculative thing. I'm selling, right? Mm -hmm. So Bitcoin, Ether, all the cryptocurrencies have basically traded, you know, more like with the stock market, right? And so the idea of the inflation hedge narrative, you know, it is, it has not really traded like an inflation hedge. Um, however, a, a few kind of more comments on that. Really, the turning point will be when people, 
are uh, kind of stay in Bitcoin even when the market is is in a downturn. And that's what's referred to as kind of like the decoupling of equities in Bitcoin. And actually today there is an article in Bloomberg about that, about how, uh, you know, there's there's so many people that are just holding or, in, you know, Bitcoiners, they're called hodlers, are, uh, you know, holding their Bitcoin throughout this downturn. downturn and that's what's caused the the price to actually go up today while equities went down. So, you know, if that happens, then Bitcoin could serve as an inflation hedge. But primarily what Bitcoin serves as is a monetary debasement hedge. And I say that, you know, price can go up and down. But one thing that Bitcoin offers people because its supply is not influenced by central banks, governments, whatever, the supply it has a fixed schedule where uh, 6.25 Bitcoin are issued roughly every 10 minutes until the next kind of halvening cycle, uh, and, and that supply will be cut in half. Bitcoin is issued up until roughly 21 million, and then that's it. Those are the only Bitcoin that will ever exist, right? So when, when somebody buys Bitcoin, they, they buy it knowing that they're owning a scarce asset. They're, they're, owning, they're putting their money or their, their value, whatever, into something that will never be arbitrarily printed, right? So when you're, when you're holding dollars, you don't know if the central bank's going to just, you know, run the, run the money printer on those dollars, right? Mm-hmm. But you know, that, you know that Bitcoin, you know, that, that's not going to happen with Bitcoin. And so it's really a monetary debasement hedge, and it's, it might be an inflation hedge in the future, but it really hasn't served as one. And the, the idea of an inflation hedge is really, there are no sure inflation hedges, right? If there is a sure inflation hedge, that would be awesome. It would probably be, everybody would use it, right? But really, it, the idea of an inflation hedge is what people's best guess at an inflation hedge might be, right? So the calling Bitcoin, you know, saying it, oh, it's failed because it hasn't served as an inflation hedge is really, it's very uncharitable at, at best. So Yeah, yeah, it's pretty myopic. It's really yeah. just focused on right now. Like, yeah. oh, yeah. you know, like I lost, you know, whatever amount of money over the past few months and I'm just out of here or just watching other people lose, you know, but then you talk about uh, hodling or holding, yeah. you know, um, and and so that's something that can maybe be like a long-term uh, investment for people. And of course, you know, the caveat, this is not any financial advice here, but just yes. talking yeah. hypothetically. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's the kind of thing that, you know, um, people who perhaps really understand um, the value of Bitcoin um, might be in that category. But this leads me to to ask you a question that probably many people do have, people mm-hmm. who aren't into Bitcoin, but maybe who are curious about it is, what is the intrinsic value of Bitcoin? <laughs> um, Bitcoin has no intrinsic value. Uh, I, you know, some people, some people might disagree with that, but, you know, Bitcoin is money and it has no other use other than its use is money, right? So when you have, when you have something like gold, gold, you know, might have what, what we would call an intrinsic, an intrinsic value because it has a value for its use, uh, in something other than money, right? If, if we were using, say, if we were, this is, 
it's just an example. But if we were using something like real estate and as money, um, then that that real estate would have you know an intrinsic value or something like that, like salt. If we were trading salt as money, salt has an intrinsic value because I can use it to season food, right? But Bitcoin has no intrinsic value because you can't use Bitcoin for anything other than money, right? And similarly with you know dollars, dollars have no intrinsic value unless maybe maybe if there were a ton of dollars, I could use them to like uh, light light the furnace in my house or something like that. <laughs> but um, they really have no they have no intrinsic value. So really, all Bitcoin offers people are its monetary qualities as money. And that's that's really why anybody, you know, if they're really digging into it and not just, you know, putting their money in Bitcoin because they're like, oh, this is a cool new shiny tech thing. Maybe it'll go up. Right. All it has to offer really are its monetary qualities. And those are that it is, you know, it has a fixed supply schedule. Anybody can use it. And it is it is decentralized. So you don't have to get permission from your bank or whatever to to use it. And that's that's what makes Bitcoin attractive to people as a money. Not that it has an intrinsic value like gold where you can use it as jewelry or salt or or anything else. Yeah, that's a really good explanation actually. Um and then some people might say, well well then that's pointless. You know, like <laughs> I don't want I don't want to use anything that doesn't really have any intrinsic value, but then they're using fiat money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, fiat money, of course, as you said, like the intrinsic value is, is just the paper that you mm -hmm. could use if you wanted to, to burn it or to, or to, you know, yeah, to start a fire in, in the apocalypse or if you wanted to, yeah. you know, write down a note or something, but we don't actually even use uh, cash money for that. Um, so, so that's kind of that's kind of a really interesting way of putting it. Um, but maybe you know, for some people, they would they would say, ah, but you know what? I'd rather stick with fiat money because it's more stable, because we can trust it, because all of the arguments that the central banks are giving, you know, mm -hmm. that we're trustworthy, you know, et cetera. But then, if you actually look um, at what central banks and the associated governments have been doing, you know, in just the last two and a half years, they've become increasingly authoritarian. Uh, they've been become uh, increasingly controlling. Um, they have quashed down dissent. Uh, they have manipulated the money. And one of the things uh, that we see in, in discussions about CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, which could be the alternative uh, to the fiat yeah. money that we have now, and you know, really the centralized kind of the flip side of Bitcoin, um, what we see there is the ability to manipulate money so that, for example, you're only able to spend a certain amount per month. You know, you're only able to, uh, if it's inflation, you know, well, then they're going to adjust things within your own bank account and your your amount of money might fluctuate in there. And these are all things that, that are being spoken about. So um, it's not just hypothetical uh, in that sense. These are are, are really in, in kind of concrete discussions. Um, so, you know, and then there's also the ability to do things like China is doing to attach that to your social credit and say, okay, well, you're not able to travel, you know, if you haven't been a good citizen, if you've posted something on social media that we didn't like, right? And, 
you know, there's all of those kinds of things that could happen with central bank digital currencies. And then if you look at where we're going in terms of the whole uh, green movement, yeah, <laughs> this could very, very easily become something like, well, you know what, you've you've um, done enough mileage, you know, for the month, so you're not able to buy any more gas for, or maybe you're not able to buy another vehicle for X amount of time. You know, all of these constraints can be put on your money. So, you know, maybe at this time, um, we don't see as much of a difference with Bitcoin in that sense, but when the time comes uh, where those, you know, possibilities become actuality, you know, if that actually does get to that point in some countries, well, then it might be important to to have an alternative, really. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a an alternative. It, it is part of Bitcoin's, you know, monetary qualities, the you know, permissionless transactions, but. Um, it's not, you know, it's not like the the fixed supply, the the kind of monetary debasement hedge aspect of it. It's another aspect of it that's very important, and that's that Bitcoin, you know, enables people to be, you know, financially sovereign, and and sovereign in a way where, you know, they have control of their money. Not it's not at the behest of you know central banks, and that's you know in the West. It's becoming increasingly important uh, outside of the West, like you said. It's getting even crazier. Um, so yeah, when you yeah when you talk about when somebody says that Bitcoin is worthless and therefore the the costs of mining are just a hundred percent a net negative, it offers nothing nothing of value. You hear these arguments in people that talk about the cost of Bitcoin mining. They think you know, oh you know the. the the cost, it's, it's harmful to the environment and it provides nothing of value because we already have money. And you sh- you, it's really important to ask those people, do we have good money? Do we have money that, you know, enables us to be free? Or we do, do we have money that is, you know, increasingly threatens our sovereignty as individuals? Yeah. And actually, on the energy point, I also heard an interesting discussion on that where um, the mining energy itself can be used to power other things. Have you heard mm-hmm. that before? Yeah. Yeah. So Bitcoin mining is it's really exciting because you can stick, you know, a Bitcoin miner is just uh, it's just a computer. It's just a specialized computer that, um, you know, it tries to solve the like hash functions to. Uh, compete at an opportunity of getting rewarded with the Bitcoin mining reward. People, miners enter into pools to kind of increase that, uh, their chances of it. And then there's also mining companies, but it's really just a bunch of computers. And if you think about the economics of Bitcoin mining, what are your costs? Your costs are just electricity and you can put it anywhere. So it's really, it's, it's powerful because you, you basically have a, an operation or a business that where the costs are pretty much just the cost of electricity. So Bitcoin miners can move to anywhere that electricity is is cheapest, and that empowers a lot of energy producers when they might have excess energy. Like in Texas, you know, you have um, when shale gets burned, it just gets like the excess energy just gets like blown into the air. And that is, you know, it's bad for the environment. Well, what if you can just stick a bunch of Bitcoin miners, you know, attach those to the 
the natural gas operation and, you know, you, you route that energy into those and you have less uh, flare going into the air or just a host of different things that Bitcoin mining actually allows energy producers to do and, you know, just allows anybody to do if they want to make a business um, looking for the cheapest cost of electricity that they can, you know, make a profit off of using to mine Bitcoin. Yeah, so you can actually use the natural cycles um, and just kind yeah. of allow those things to to have less waste, essentially. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But can can Bitcoin itself, can the mining process itself also give out energy? Do you know? Um, I know that, yes, yeah. So the mining, uh, not, I don't know of how much. I mean, I've seen at-home miners where, you know, these computers... They're running really fast. They get really hot, right? And so if you, I've actually been in like a warehouse of miners or these, basically these computers, and it's really hot. It's a lot of hot air, right? So they, they do give off electricity. And I've, I've seen some personal, uh, people that have, you know, one or two of these machines. They're called ASICs, um, mm-hmm. in their homes and they've used them to like heat their pools or heat their homes or stuff like that. Right. So there are uses for that as well. Not as, not as like scalable as the energy required to you know charge use them, but uh, they do emit energy as well. Yeah. Okay. So it's kind of like cooking with a gas stove. Like you might have yeah. some some residual heat that you can benefit from. Yeah. And they oh. also produce a lot of noise. So if you're if you're looking at getting into it, it's uh, you got to figure that out because they're loud. That's one of the main reasons I'm not running one in my apartment because it's very loud. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I've I've looked into that too, and that's what I saw also. Yeah. So you know that that could be something that you want to put like in a shed or or somewhere mm-hmm. where you're not actually living, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's kind of uh, one of the downsides, I guess. But then again, that's maybe what um, what adds to the kind of magic, you know, in a way. Like there is a magical aspect uh, to Bitcoin. Um, and not not to mean that um, it's not real, but that there's kind of some kind of allure that's that's really interesting about it, and um, that would be one of those kinds of things, you know. Like you have to kind of mine it in a specific way, you know. Um, it's kind of mysterious. You 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 gotta you gotta run these machines. They're gonna create heat. They're gonna create noise. And there's this there's this real kind of process to it um, that's really different. Um, than, than printing money at a giant, you know, uh, central bank printing press, right? Yeah. It's its, its yeah. own kind of operation that's that's got its own flavor. Yeah, and it's evolved because Bitcoin is so valuable. People value Bitcoin so much that they've basically worked to create these specialized computers that cost like $10,000 each one in order to mine, in order to be like the best computer for mining Bitcoin. I mean, when Bitcoin first came out, you could just mine it on your laptop. That I wish I was into it then, right? Um, but you know, it's 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 really you know the fact that people value it so much has generated an entire industry devoted to mining it, similarly to to how gold did. Yeah, yeah, and that's okay. So this brings me to the gold uh, comparison. Um, so you were saying earlier that you know. People do compare it to gold, but you don't seem to compare it to gold. Is that accurate? Well, it's so it's, you know, comparable. I kind of think about it in terms of, you know, new, new a new monetary technology that 
builds on some features that Gold had, or has some features that Gold had, but also builds on them a little, or builds on it a, a little bit. Similarly, kind of like in the, the evolution of different types of money, you had seashells, beads, silver, whatever, gold, then gold kind of won. And, you know, then, then you had dollars, bad, right? And now, um, now, now we have Bitcoin, right? In terms of, you know, technological properties. And so Bitcoin is like gold in that it's more scarce than dollars, um, you know, and, and that, you know, it's, it's a way to, you can store your wealth in gold and, and be confident that the government's not going to print more gold, right? Um, and so those are, those are some powerful similarities between the two. But Bitcoin improves upon gold in that it's very easy to transfer value across space with Bitcoin. Very hard to transfer value across space with gold. Right? Yes. It's very hard for me to mail you a, a gold brick, right? Yeah. So yeah. with gold, you can you know, store your value across time, knowing that it's not going to be you know, debased or diluted or whatever, or that it's less likely to be. But, uh, you know, it's, and you can do the same thing with Bitcoin, but it's really transferring value across space where Bitcoin improves upon gold. And then also the fact that Bitcoin is, uh, you know, the Bitcoin network is decentralized and largely immutable in that, like, you know, you can't, you can't change Bitcoin, right, is actually in, in the modern day, you know, a an advantage it has to gold because, you know, gold is awesome, but it it can be basically, you know, governments can collect all the gold, right? And yes. and it's easier to censor gold transactions, even though it's it's harder than with, you know, digital fiat currency, it's easier for governments to kind of censor gold. And that's how it's really one way that gold kind of failed in that, you know, in 1933, the, the, the reason AIR was founded, you know, governments just said, you know, no more, no more gold. We're going to confiscate it all, yeah. right? Executive order by FDR, right? Yeah, yeah. It would be, yeah. it would be a lot more challenging for governments to uh, confiscate all the Bitcoin. Um, yeah. So Bitcoin's monetary qualities improve upon golds in some, in a few ways, and then also, um, if you. Many people consider scarcity to be important with money, and Bitcoin is more scarce than gold. Gold is, you know, it the supply grows around two percent uh, roughly annually because you know miners are mining it, right? But Bitcoin supply is actually fixed, right? There will only be approximately twenty-one million Bitcoin in the world. So if you value scarcity with your money, Bitcoin is more scarce than gold. And why sh why could or should people value scarcity? Yeah, um, I think that you know over time we've seen that people like to store their their wealth in in scarce assets. That's something that you know value is is subjective. But you know it it would be I would rather have you know it's probably better to have a money that if say say you and I. And say say there was a small town, you know, we were we were like on an island or something. We had a hundred units of money, and you know, we were we were trading with those with that money. 
And because there were only 100 units, every time we produced more like capital goods, right, we got more productive, the, the purchasing power of those units increased, right, along with, with kind of, you know, society getting more productive. Yes. yes. And then when you introduce, you say you jack, jack those units up to 200, right, from, 200, from 100 to 200, then, you know, our purchasing power kind of the purchasing power of each unit goes down, right? And so, you know, having having a, a scarce a scarce money kind of allows us to to store our wealth in something that is, you know, kind of allows us to allows that asset to grow as we grow more productive. And, you know, it can't be the purchasing power of that asset can't be diluted by supply increases. Is it right. is a roundabout way of, of explaining it? That's a great explanation, actually. And yeah. so it's kind of like, you know, growing in conjunction with um, the social process and the technological process yeah. and how, you know, um, you know, how exchanges are actually happening with people. Um, and rather than being something that you can manipulate, you know, and we see that now when we're looking at inflation, when we're looking at you know, what caused inflation, when we're looking at also the supply issues, when we're looking at the money printing, when we're looking at all of these other factors um, that don't have to do with really the actual productivity and growth yeah. and technological advancements that, you know, that we've been making as as citizens, right? It's just kind of, you could see that there's a disconnect, is what I mean to say, between yeah. the fiat currency and between how people are living and how they're producing and consuming. Yeah, yeah, and it's really it's really intuitive. Like the example I just gave, I could probably give to a 5-year-old, right? And then you ask that same 5-year-old is probably wondering, "Well, wait, why is everything why do things just keep getting more expensive, right?" And then you have to explain central banking and inflation to them and <laughs> and why people like say that that's good, right? And it's just yeah. it gets like it gets crazy, right? Yeah. And and it's it's uh it's a it's a sad thing, basically. Yeah, they, they yeah. would probably not. You, they would say, "Well, that doesn't make sense." You know, that yeah. doesn't make sense. <laughs> you know. Yeah, and um, you're like, "Well, the, it's a tough world, five-year-old, right?" Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, so then you know, Bitcoin, I guess, could be something for people. Um, you know, if they think that it's a good thing for them, that can give them some hope. You know, that even if now, uh, you know, in the the shorter term. It's dropped quite a bit, um, you know, and, and maybe people have lost money um, or they've just watched it happen. You know, they could still think of what life might look like down the line because mm -hmm. I think that the overarching story here is that we're once again, you know, almost 100 years later from the last big, you know, waves of authoritarianism, we're in this kind of uh, battle between very centralized power, yeah, you know, and uh, decentralization, which is kind of like they're both reacting to each other, mm -hmm. or maybe like the the growing authoritarianism is a reaction to increasing decentralization. 
You know, like the internet, people being able to look things up for themselves, people being able to look up medical treatments and, and you know, alternative medicines and uh, to be able to choose what they want to watch, not just on network television, but on YouTube and things like that. Like we, we've seen trends of decentralization that have been happening yeah. um, in parallel with Bitcoin, really. And it's almost as if this authoritarianism that has grown has maybe been a reaction to that and vice versa. So there, there are both of these forces that are, that are working, you know, against each other and, and with each other. Yeah, yeah. And um, one thing I'd like to respond to initially, you know, again, not financial advice, right? Um, we're really, just, this is a research institute. Um, but, you know, if you, if you kind of zoom out on Bitcoin and, and compare it to things, you know, after the dot-com bubble, Amazon was, had like a 95% drawdown in a very short period of time, right? So, you know, I think in, in today's world, you know, where everything is like so headline-driven, so kind of, you know, narrative-driven, you, you have like it's really easy to say like, oh, it's decreased by X amount in X amount of time. It's dead, right? The, the funniest thing to me is, you know, look up like Bitcoin is dead. It's like, it's like every other month uh, a kind of pro fiat journalist is claiming that, right? And, um, you know, so I think that if you have conviction in Bitcoin or, or believe that it's kind of a, a hopeful thing based on its monetary qualities, then, you know, zooming out might be helpful for you, at least psychologically. Um, and then, but yeah, it, it's technology is, is been, has been interesting because, you know, a lot of liberty-focused people thought that the internet would bring this beautiful new world where everybody could interact and be free of government and all of that. And we've seen that, you know, government just embedded itself in the internet and started censoring stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. Bad. Total, like, it, we were like, oh, man, we got it wrong, right? But yeah. then, you know, simultaneously, stuff like Bitcoin and, you know, other, you know, more privacy-focused things do offer offer hope. And I, I like the way that, that you put that, that like in the, it probably would have been nice in the 30s if people had something like Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think so, too. And I, and I, I wonder, you know, what did the struggle look like, you know, with people who did not want to give up the gold standard, who did not yeah. want to have their gold confiscated, you know, who, you know, didn't think that the central banks should be doing that. And I think the central banks, uh, the Federal Reserve was only created, you know, like 15 or 20 years before that yeah. happened. So that's kind of interesting, too, to think about is that. There you have that kind of move on the chessboard, like, boom, here's a central bank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you yeah. have, okay, we're going to do this now. And, you know, uh, the mandates keep changing uh, or the mandates have stayed the same, but the goalposts are changing in a sense, right? Like the Federal Reserve yeah. is supposed to be there uh, for stability and for employment, correct? Yeah, yeah. Price stability and then second or I, I don't know if it's kind of ranked ranked in order, but usually usually people say price stability matters more than you know maximizing employment. But yeah, that is the the dual mandate. Yeah, well, it's kind of interesting. I've always thought that it's a bit of a conflicting mandate because you know sometimes in order to have price stability, if you're manipulating money, you might end up in a recession. 
no matter how you want to define a recession, you might end up there. And, you know, what happens there is that you have employment instability. So they're kind of like these two things that are really difficult to to juggle. You know, they're mm-hmm. they're they can be opposite at times, right? So if yeah. things are going well, then there's jobs and prices are stable and everything is good. But when things start to get off track, you know, when all of the things that have been done in the last two and a half years, like printing so much money, um, just these lockdowns, stopping all these supply chains, like creating all of these interferences in markets worldwide and, and, and in exchanges and all of that kind of thing, you know, then of course it's going to be really difficult for basically, uh, I, I, I'll just say my opinion, in a way central banks, they're kind of technocratic, right? Like they need to take yeah. all of the information and try and calculate everything and do it from this central place. But, you know, we know that that that's not maybe the best way of doing things. Um, so I wonder like if there's actually a world where central banks can exist uh, in conjunction with freer markets uh, and in conjunction with Bitcoin and that there can kind of be this um, symbiosis and everything can be kind of fine and things can kind of work out if there's you know, less intervention there, but I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm really not sure because, uh, Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin offers, well, if, if it were easier to transact with Bitcoin, you know, in, in somewhere like the United States, if, if laws made it easier, because one thing that makes it very challenging to transact with Bitcoin in somewhere like the United States is that, Every time you buy something with Bitcoin, it's a taxable event. So you have to like record it, right, and and pay taxes on it and on a you know the gain or the loss or something like that. So that that makes it really cumbersome. Um, and basically, it's it's on entrepreneurs to find a way around that, or um, you know not not like help people do tax evasion, but you know find find a way to circumvent that process so it's not a tax taxable event. Um, because Bitcoin is a money, right? It's not. Uh, it's not. You know, something. It's not. It's not really like a speculative thing that people are just putting money in, like as an investment. It's. It is a a money. It's an. It's an attempt at a creating a digital cash, right. and so. Right. Um, you know, it's it's Bitcoin. The Bitcoin network, though, really offers everything that you know uh, the central banking institution. Also offers. So if if Bitcoin works, if people start using Bitcoin for everything, it basically obsoletes the central bank. Um, so it's it would be hard to see how that would exist in tandem for a long time if a lot of people start using Bitcoin because then they're not using dollars; they're on the the, the Bitcoin system, right? Yeah. Um, I guess I guess a central bank. So. One thing that, you know, we had in the past were, you know, dollars or notes backed by gold, right? Mm-hmm. And that was because it's it's hard, like like we were talking about earlier, it's hard for me to send you a gold brick, right? So so we use like paper paper and stuff like that. But with Bitcoin, it's super easy, right? So there's really there's no need really for um unless you were to create an asset or like a, a second layer to try to like reduce volatility or something, there's no need for notes 
backed by circulating notes backed by Bitcoin, you can just use Bitcoin, right? Yeah. Um, so it's really, um, it, I mean, Bitcoin really threatens central banks. Um, and, you know, you could still have, you know, you could still collect taxes, do all sorts of that stuff. But, you know, a central bank controlling the money supply, if everybody's using Bitcoin, impossible, unless they can somehow control Bitcoin, which is impossible. So, yeah, yeah, that's that makes a lot of sense to me. Or maybe another thing to think about is that maybe central banks could be like an alternative for people. Like maybe yeah. people say, you know what, I'll never want to be in Bitcoin. I never yeah. want to touch that. I'm not interested. And, you know, it just offers a choice for people. And maybe that's what we'll see happen. Maybe central banks will start their own digital currency. You know, that's where they're headed. Um, maybe they'll do this kind of thing. And then other people will stay over here. And then maybe over time that will change and we'll kind of see how things shift. Uh, which brings me to kind of, um, I guess... Maybe my last question for you today. This has been yeah, a sure. wonderful discussion. Um, I was thinking, like, what do you think is the future of Bitcoin? <laughs> what, if I give you a crystal ball and I say, David, look into this crystal ball, tell me what you see, like shake it up and what does it say? What are the options there? Yeah, so I think that, you know, there, there are a lot of different routes that, you know, that could happen. That's really one thing that's important to remember is that, you know, Bitcoin exists, anybody can use it, anybody can transfer value across space and time on the Bitcoin network. But it's still not, you know, super easy to use Bitcoin on a on a day to day basis for all your transactions. And part of that is regulatory. But it's also on entrepreneurs to build the future of finance on Bitcoin if they want to, right? So it's really dependent on entrepreneurs. I think that I think that Bitcoin builds upon a lot of gold's uh, qualities and, and is a better kind of alternative to gold. People will probably still use gold because it's been around for five thousand years. It's you know gold is so important in terms of monetary history. But you could maybe you could see Bitcoin maybe you know assuming a lot of gold's roles at at kind of the the most the most bearish case I can give on Bitcoin you know caveating that I really believe in the future of the technology you know the most bearish case is maybe it replaces gold and and or some functions of gold and you know gold's market cap is around ten trillion dollars Bitcoin's is. I don't know what it is today, but maybe it's in the hundreds of uh, hundreds of billions. It hit a trillion, um, yeah, very briefly. But you know that's that's at least ten times smaller than than gold. So you could see it kind of eat into that. And then you know, best case scenario, say say my call to action to the call call to action to the entrepreneurs uh, worked. You know, and, and we build we build the future of finance on Bitcoin, make it easier for people to use. Then you know, then Bitcoin is the future of finance, and um, so that's kind of yeah. Those are the those are the scenarios, or you know, all all sorts of things could happen. But I think that I think that it's kind of like the internet in a way that it it can't really be stopped. You know, the process of 
creative destruction, the, the process of economic pro- of progress is a paradox. It's messy. Some stuff gets left behind. Some, some stuff, you know, goes forward and, you know, it'll be, it'll be a mess. It'll be a very messy process, but, uh, I'm, I'm optimistic. Awesome. Well, you know what? I think that this is a great place to leave our chat. It's been really, really lovely. I could talk about this for hours with you. I know. Yeah, we didn't (laughs) even talk about Luna, but it's okay. Yeah. You know, I guess Luna, you know, people can look it up. Just check those headlines. Um, Luna was, was, you know, if you want to say a second about Luna, go for it. Yeah, sure. I'll just briefly summarize that, um, you know, a lot of crypto projects get created and, uh, you know, it's it's all of a sudden going to be the greatest thing. It's going to obsolete Bitcoin, and then it turns out to be a Ponzi scheme, and then the financial press somehow blames Bitcoin for it. That's really like it's really what we see, and it's and it's uh, or, or they're like, oh, crypto's crypto is toast, and therefore Bitcoin is bad. When really Bitcoin had nothing to do with uh, you know basically this uh, sketchy scheme to try to. Um, you know, was, Luna was basically, or UST, Terra, um, was basically monetary alchemy. A, a, a guy, you know, tried to create uh, the value of a dollar, an algorithmic stable coin, but backing it with nothing, similar to how currency pegs basically break. And it broke. It, you know, it cost uh, investors or people that bought it, you know, um, Millions. I think it was actually the same as uh, like the Madoff scandal in terms of like losses, and you know, it, and so you, it's important to separate stuff like that, which is basically an entrepreneurial scheme to create a crypto to enrich the creator, versus Bitcoin, which is uh, money that was released to the world uh, for basically everybody to use. And doesn't have like this controlling entity that needs to make a buck off of it. Yeah. So, so these other uh, cryptos, you know, how they are being compared, it's just a false equivalency. Yeah. But your to your last point, I think that this is actually one of the things that could make people skeptic. Is that, you know, who would do this? Would what benevolent, uh, you know, people would decide to just gift? The world, you know, if everything that you say is true about Bitcoin, who would gift it to the world? You know, are there actually people out there who exist who just want to put something good into the world for people to use? You know, the the cynics might have a problem with that. Yeah, I think that I would, uh, you know, this might sound hyperbolic, but I would point to the American founding and I would say, you know, did... Did those people just, you know, want to create a better world or were they like self-interested, right? Were they, you know, sometimes sometimes people can be altruistic and try to make a world a better place in the face of like something they perceive to be really threatening to the, the future of humanity. Um, you know, and, and similarly to George Washington, who, you know, he was president, he helped America kind of get going, then he stepped back, right? That's basically what um, the Satoshi Nakamoto did. So, you know, if you're criticizing that, you're kind of criticizing the, this is very hyperbolic, but you're kind of criticizing the, the, uh, motivation of the America's founders.
So. No, I think that that's actually such a great example. And I'm glad that you brought up as well, you know, altruistic and self-interested. Sometimes um, altruistic ends come from self-interested means. Yeah. So maybe this is what we're seeing here. Awesome. Well, listen, let's let's wrap this up here. It's been a great mm -hmm. chat. Thank you so much, David. And I hope to yeah, have you on again to talk about more. more yeah, of this we stuff. could go more in depth on all sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah, will be awesome. Thank you so much.